0: good morning. We're going to get straight on with this. We've got a short passage of the Bible to read, and it is uh, concise and uh, condensed and amazing. And uh, so let's read it, and then let's see what it means. It's Galatians 3, uh, verses 26 to 28. We are back in our uh, Free From series, looking at all that God has set us free from and all that he has brought us into. And here we're told, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now at first glance, in 2015, this might seem like a statement of the obvious, there should be no differences between Jews and non-Jews, slaves or free, uh, male and female, race and religion, economic situation, gender. We say we know that these things shouldn't matter in terms of how people are treated, how they are to be considered. And we're blessed to live in a country where technically that is the case. Everyone can vote, anyone can study, uh, discrimination in employment is illegal. And yet we do differentiate from one another all the time. We can sometimes have great fun with that. Yesterday was a day of enormous fun of differentiation if you were a rugby fan, particularly if you're an Irish rugby fan, less so if you're a Scottish rugby fan, <laughs> which is slightly awkward, but there was the, the whole thrill of yesterday was who is going to come top, and it's slightly less surprising who came bottom, um, <laughs> But all sport does this. All sport creates hierarchies and we're entertained by that and a lot of our other entertainment does the same kind of thing. Uh, so we have, you know, we have voting for people in talent shows and uh, we wouldn't say I'm discriminating against you by voting for this other person but we are being discriminating uh, in its original sense. And this then goes on into all other areas of our lives as well. We wouldn't want to go to a place that we looked on TripAdvisor and it only had one out of five. We try and find places that get four or five out of five. And when you visit them, they then say, please, please give us a five out of five rating because otherwise other people won't come to us. And when we look on Amazon for a product and we think the product looks good, but then we see some reviews and we think, oh, this doesn't seem very good because this person said it's awful. Do not buy and it turns out they didn't even buy it themselves and so we're not sure if we can trust them and so we've got to make another level of discrimination. <laughs> and then we have our school's league tables and we have postcode envy and accent bias. And then it gets much more serious with, with racism, with sexism, with ignoring those who are in need, with abusing those who are weaker than us because, well, we're able to. And we've grown up with a very powerful justification for this. I think it's quite instinctive to us as sinful human beings, but we now live in a time where we have a very powerful reason to to kind of think, well, this is what life is like, because life is a competition. And it is all about the survival of the fittest. In his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, Charles Darwin wrote this. With savages... The weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed and the sick. We introduce poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There's reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus the weak members of civilized society propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the, way, to the race of man. It's surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But accepting the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. Now maybe we should say that he is a creature of his time and we have evolved our views since then. (laughs) But last year when Richard Dawkins was asked by someone what parents should do if their unborn child was suspected of having Down syndrome, he tweeted, abort it and try again. Now he later apologised if the brevity of his tweet made it seem harmless, uh, heartless. Sorry, but he noted that many of the objections to his view were emotional rather than logical. And as Professor John Wyatt said to us last week, it seems 92% of babies screamed as having or possibly having Down syndrome are aborted in the UK. And yet we use the word equality all the time, and we say that everyone is equal. The word has never been so popular. Anyone should be able to do anything they want, they want. We seem to hold two very contradictory thoughts together. I mean, we're quite impressive as human beings that we can do that. So it's not quite as simple as it seems. So how should Christians relate to each other and to all people? Because it is possible, and you'll probably know this, for Christians to be as hierarchical as anyone else. From a sense of earning more holy points than the others around us, and therefore feeling slightly better about ourselves, or slightly worse, uh, depending on what side you are, uh, to just looking down on other believers, especially from the past, uh, or it seems especially from America, for their bad fashion and bad theology. I like to hope that I'm avoiding both those errors today, um, <laughs> one possibly, hopefully, with slightly more conviction than the other. And the Galatians faced essentially this same challenge, because I think human beings always face this challenge. The reason that Paul wrote his letter to them uh, was that they were being persuaded that putting their faith in Jesus was just the start of how we make ourselves acceptable to God, it didn't get you everything you needed. They were being taught by others, kind of believing in Jesus is a good start, but that's not enough to really be acceptable to God. You need to uh, follow Jewish uh, traditions and the laws that are written in the Old Testament about ceremonial uh, behaviours, and this immediately creates a hierarchy. So you have, according to these teachers, have Jews at the top, and then you have. Uh, people who are observing Jewish practices and then you have people who aren't either Jews or observing Jewish practices. So there's a hierarchy put in there straight away and it opens up a whole league table of possibilities for superiority and inferiority to flourish. Have you been circumcised? How many festivals have you celebrated? How little amount of work did you do on the Sabbath? All these things create a structure in our head of thinking okay well how well am I doing or not? The brief passage we're going to look at today, Paul gives us a very concise answer to this challenge, as well as showing us how to think about the hierarchies that are in our culture. And so we're going to look at how Paul makes his argument and then look at what that means for us. And so here we are. When you want to understand what a is trying to say to you, it often helps to see what are they trying to emphasize? How are they making their point? Paul does that in a couple of quite simple ways here. Uh, in Greek writing, uh, the order of the words that you put in the sentence was, uh, you could use that to create emphasis. You can kind of do that in English, but it doesn't make quite as much uh, sense. Um, and you also repeat. Repetition is, is an obvious way of working out where an emphasis is being made. And Paul does both of those here. It wouldn't make sense if we translated this sentence starting with the word all just by itself, but in the Greek it says all, for in Christ Jesus, and on and off it, on it goes. He he says all as his first word in this point, and then he adds repetition to hammer the point home. He then goes on to say in verse 27, as many of you were, and then again in 28, you are all. No Christians are excluded here from what he's talking about. As Dan was trying to make that point earlier by saying everyone, and that therefore means everyone. Everyone. Paul's saying the same thing here. And he's saying the same thing to the Galatians, who just a few sentences earlier, he called them idiots. He said, you foolish Galatians, what is wrong with you? But despite their foolishness, despite the mistakes that they are making, he says, you are all what follows next. This is true for all of you. And therefore, if you're a Christian here today, it's true for you too. Well, what is it that is true for all of us? More repetition to make the point. Four times in three verses, Paul talks about how Jesus Christ and his followers are related to each other. And that should give us a clue as to what Paul is trying to emphasise here. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, baptised into Christ Jesus, put on Christ. Verse 28, in Christ Jesus. Again. So he's saying, all of you Christians are in Christ now, this is one of Paul's favourite phrases. He uses it over 170 times in his letters. It's what he most commonly uses to describe Christians. He says, you are in Christ. So, well, what does that, what does that mean then? Well, it means a couple of things, and there's a story behind it. There's, there is the story of salvation, actually, behind it. And so we work our way up to that. Here's what I think is in Paul's mind at this moment. It starts with this. All of us were made by God. The Bible says that right at the beginning. Whatever you think about Genesis, one of the conclusions you should surely come to is that God made all people. That's what the Bible is saying. Men and women, all of them, all made by God. Then the second thing that we've all done, not only are we all made by God, we have all sinned. Terrible things or seemingly minor misdemeanors, just a couple of things here and there, or a whole lifestyle of living in rebellion to God. All of us have, in some way or other, put ourselves in opposition to Him by our thoughts and our deeds and our words. That sets us up on the wrong side of reality. Maybe you're not a Christian here today and you think, I know what Christians are like. They think they're great and everyone else is a mess. No, we think everyone's a mess. All of us are a mess. And it doesn't stop there, which is the good news, because all of us are offered salvation from God's just punishment by Jesus Christ's work alone. The benefits of his life and his death and his resurrection are offered to anyone, and in fact, to everyone. This message is for all. No one's good deeds count for anything except his. And there's obviously a reason for that, which is that the, 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 the gap between us and God because of our sin, the opposition between us and God because of our sin, was just too enormous for any of us to bridge. But what that also does is it undermines that being any sense of a kind of performance-based Christianity. A sense of, look, well, I've done all these good deeds. Well, that has not helped you whatsoever. You needed the life and death and resurrection of God himself to save you and rescue you. That is the wonderful news. How do you access that? How do you take hold of it? It's the same for, guess who? All of us. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's by trusting in Christ. Trusting that what he has done for us will put us right with God, will forgive us our sins, will credit us with his righteousness and his perfection and his goodness, and will empower us to live for him. We all get that by trusting in it. And then what happens? All are to be baptised. We say we're going to do that on Easter Sunday, we do that on regular times during the year. And baptism represents the same new birth that all of us have when we put our trust in Jesus. Our old life dies, buried in the water, our new life begins, raised quickly up again, out of the water all of us experience that. All of us require it. And then this new life, which is for all who believe, is what Paul describes as being in Christ. So that is the background of what Paul means when he just says this thing in Christ. Like This is the story for all of you who are Christians, for all of you who have put your trust in Jesus, for all of you who are sinners, for all of you who are made by God, for all of you who have been baptised, you are now in Christ. This is wonderful news. It is really, really wonderful news. Here's a couple of reasons why it's wonderful news. Firstly, this speaks of intimacy is isn't simply that we belong to Christ, although that is true. It's that we are, we are in him. We are so profoundly and permanently united with Jesus. We have such joyful and personal communion with him that it is impossible now to divide us and him. It should be impossible for people to discern the difference. Like where does Jesus begin and you end? Where do you start? With Jesus begin? You can't tell because you are in him. You're so fully in him. Your life, your communication with him, your living for him is so fused with him. You are in him. It's profound. It also speaks of status. It means that when, G- when, uh, when God, the Father, observes us, who does he see? He sees the one who we are in. He sees his son, Jesus, with all his perfection and all of his authority and all of his righteousness and all that he is. All of that is credited to you if you're a Christian. This is incredible. Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is God's beloved son who is going to inherit all things. Who therefore are you if you're a Christian? You are God's beloved child who is going to inherit all things. That is your status now, if you're a Christian. You access that by faith, not by working it up and doing all these good things. No, you are brought into it. That is what God has done. That is who you are. That is great news. And it's undermining to any sense of hierarchy. So to his opponents... Who are saying to him, Paul, you must do these ceremonial traditions as well, Paul says, to gain what? What will I get by doing these other things that I do not already have if I am in Christ? What do I currently lack? If you have Christ, and all believers in him do, what else do you need? What status are you lacking? What uh, power don't you have? With all the benefits that Jesus gives you by faith in the moment of your salvation, what could you possibly still need to earn through other behaviors? Do you see the sense of that? What status could you attain higher than Son of God, which is what you currently have if you're a Christian? Often you think, I must just do this and I must just do that, and then God will be pleased. God has declared you a son. He has declared you his child. If I just do this and just do this, then I'll know God. You are in Christ now, Christian. This means that any sense of Jew-Gentile hierarchy in the Galatian church was ridiculous. Because both sides, as it were, are in Christ. Christ. How could we value one person more highly than another when this is true of both of them, when they have the same status and experience? That is the logic of Paul's argument. He says you cannot differentiate between one another because you are both, you are all in Christ. And then he widens his view to all the other major divisions that we make as human beings. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just before that you see he references baptism and some scholars think because of the reference to baptism and and, and something of the language in this moment that Paul is actually, he's quoting a a phrase that would have been said by Christians uh, when they got baptised. So if so, this makes it a very, very early Christian statement and even if that's not true, even if this was an original statement to Paul this is written less than 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. This is the earliest Christianity that there is. Right from the start, these thoughts are in place and they are turning the world that they live in upside down. This is so radically different to the world that those people had been brought up in, whether they were Jews or Greeks. If they were Jews, had been brought up as Jews, if they were the men, they had a prayer that they could pray. And in that prayer, they would say, I bless you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a non-Jew, for not making me a, a, an ignorant peasant or slave and for not making me a woman. That's what they prayed. And similarly, the Greeks had a similar thanksgiving formula. Said, God, uh, uh, whoever they thought, I'm, I'm grateful I'm a human, not an animal. I'm a man, not a woman. And I'm a Greek, not a barbarian. This is the tightly structured world in which these people lived. And Jesus Destroys those structures. He absolutely annihilates them by bringing everything into himself. Paul says, the gospel says, Jesus says, the only thing that matters is being in him. Nothing else does. There's no other criteria of worth. And so Christian men and women called each other brother and sister. And masters and servants called each other brother and sister. And they formed communities that treated each other like that. And it stunned the world. And this is the root, actually, of Western thinking on equality. However slowly or clumsily it has worked its way through the centuries. Since then. This is why we live in a part of the world that thinks everyone is equal. There are other parts of the world that are very clear No people aren't equal. Why is it different? Because Christianity has had a profound historical impact on our part of the world. That's why this viewpoint is kind of in the culture, in a hazy hangover from a past that we've kind of rejected, but some of the bits we like. That's where it came from. That's why you think, if you're a Westerner here, that's why you think, well, of course everyone's equal. No, people don't think everyone's equal. People don't automatically think that. What they automatically do is set up hierarchy structures. That's what the Jews did, even though they were God's people. It's what the Greeks did. It's what happens all over the world. It's what we still do when we're left to our own devices. But Jesus comes in and says, no, you are all made by God. You are all sinners. And if you put your faith in me, you are all in me. You are one in Christ Jesus. And then the final piece of this incredible thing that God has done and is doing is this. Christianity not only banishes the possibility for superiority and inferiority complexes, but in a divided society, with people even who hate us, we invite them all in. We welcome them all in. And we say, what is true for us can be true for you too. We were all, whoever you are, made by God. We have all, whatever you've done, sinned. We are all offered this great hope of being in Christ. So you're always welcome here. We're always glad when you visit. We're always glad that you're here. Because Jesus is bringing all men and women to himself. He is reuniting them. So, what does this look like? That is the wonderful truth. That's what Paul is showing us here. That is what's true for you uh, if you're a Christian. And that is the truth of Christianity for you if you're not, and the offer that God is making to you. So how do we live this out then? If you're a Christian, you think, okay, I want this to be true in my life. I want to live this way. What do you do? Well, firstly, to say, to be clear, that... All being treated the same doesn't mean that we are all the same. Now I can just see that, I just look out on you here, I can see all of you, you're all very, very different. This is wonderful. God delights in variety. We see this in all sorts of ways in his creation and in his community. And different abilities and interests and preferences and roles do not mean that we have different value. That's a a fundamental point. And Paul elsewhere uses the metaphor of a body with many parts to explain what this means for us as Uh, God's people together there's unity and diversity and shared worth and value my experience of kings I know many people here would agree with this is that we do a pretty good job actually I think of of living this way together sometimes I preach that I really need to teach people this because I don't think anyone gets it actually to live in a loving community where people are are accepting one another and enjoying uh, one another and being united in Christ I think we do that really quite well And so there's much just to kind of commend and celebrate and also think, okay, how do we make sure we continue in this way? And so I want us to look at four things we can do just quickly to maintain and increase this. The first one is I want to encourage you to celebrate your identity in Christ. Realise and delight in who you are as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should preach the gospel to yourself often. You were made by God, yet you rebelled against God, but you have been rescued by God. That is incredible news. That is wonderful. That's what we've delighted in singing this morning. It's what we spend our time, That's what I spend a lot of my time when I'm praying in the morning, thanking God for this. It's what I thank him for in the evening as well. Lord, I'm so grateful that this is the deal, that this is what you've done. As I do this, it just removes the possibility within me, I find increasingly, to kind of look down on other people because I'm telling myself all the time, you're a sinner rescued by grace. You can't love this grace. You can't celebrate it. You can't be asking God to speak to you and hearing this say to you again and again and again and then kind of think of everyone else, man, they're idiots. I just don't think... God works in us as we celebrate what he has done for us. Paul said we should boast in nothing but what Christ has done for us. This is the ultimate, this is the true, real, humble brag. We are sinners with a wonderful saviour. The more you celebrate your identity, the more you enjoy being with God, the more your relationship with Christ deepens and grows, and we experience such sufficiency in him That there is no need to resort to sin to make ourselves feel better or more secure. You lack nothing in value. You've been treated with incredible grace. So there is no need to comfort yourself by belittling others. There's no need to look down on people. There's no need to look up to people because you are in Christ. You have conversed with the King of the universe this morning. He has spoken to you he's arranged things that you've known his touch in your life he's he's uh, he's done things in you he's done things through you and for you i think this is jesus this isn't one of the mighty angels who could have god could have sent god doesn't just send someone on his behalf he has sent us himself he it's him who's with us what need have i of increasing my sense of self-worth or self-security, if this is what's going on in my life. None at all. As it happens, criticising others will not make you more, feel more secure anyway. It really won't. You're always going to have to find other people who are worse than you. And that's, I just that just seems very busy and unnecessary. When you could revel in being in Christ, you could just enjoy and tell yourself again and again, this is who I am. Am. Now, this is what God has done for me. Second thing, I really want to encourage you as you meet in small groups. We, as uh, the, the guy said during the notices, we have uh, midweek small groups, meet during the week. It's where we make our relationships grow and stick and develop. And we care and love uh, and, and encourage one another. We really want to encourage you as small groups. Uh, take bread and wine together on a regular basis. We try and do it here uh, on occasional Sundays. It's quite hard work in this setting. We do do it because it's right to do it, but I think the best way of doing it is in your small group. You can do it regularly and simply. And as you're doing that, you're saying several things all at once. You're saying, we have all been rescued by one Saviour. His body was given for all of us, one body. And so we eat of bread that represents that, and we realise this profound association that God has enabled us to have with Him. And then we drink the wine or the grape juice, which is representative of His blood which Jesus says is a blood that has established a new covenant, a new deal that God has made with all people who put their faith in him. And so we, in that point, say it's all, we have all come in the same way to Jesus. And here we are together with him, together in him. We are all one in Christ. It's, a profi- it's meant to help you learn that more and grow in that more. It's not just a ritual that you do. There is power actually in it. God's power in it to bring us closer to one another and closer to him. It doesn't have to be very formal, but it's a wonderful, joyful moment. And small group is a great time to do that and to encourage one another in that. Third thing to do, speak well of all people. If the gospel's true, you should speak well of all people. There are loads of people who are creating and maintaining divisions. I really don't think they need any help. I do find it amazing, people posting on social media. I think, who needs, who needs help to create division in this world? They're really, I mean, other people are doing an excellent job of it, really, aren't they? Let's leave them to it. We're in the middle of an election campaign that's showing us how to do this, aren't we? Let's find ways to speak better. We have so many opportunities to communicate. So we have then the option. Are we going to use our words to bless or to snark? Of course, there's wickedness in the world that needs to be warned of, needs to be fought against. But I think there are different ways to do that. Often we blaze in with a kind of confident self-righteousness. But I think we should look at We're forgiven sinners. How do forgiven sinners bring change how do they speak truth I think we need to kind of we need to think that through more I think as we do that we'll find there are other times not on a kind of national policy changing level just in our own lives that we haven't spoken well of people and we need to repent of that because it it was is it's wrong it's against the character of God and so we need to ask God for forgiveness and sometimes we have broken relationships by doing this to other people and we're going to need to go to them and say I'm sorry what I said how I did that um, came out of my pride and it's wrong and I'm sorry for that and we need to build those relationships again because those things divide us and we are one in Christ so there's something wrong going on there it needs to be fixed and the final thing I just want to encourage you to do to live out this wonderful unity in Christ that we have is to serve however you can This week we were, uh, some of us as the leaders here and office team, uh, we went down to two days of New Ground uh, prayer days, basically. We had a great time and there's a guy over from Zimbabwe um, who leads another one of the New Frontiers apostolic spheres out there. He's called Scott Marks. and He's an amazing kind of entrepreneur and leader and he was talking about how you live as a church in Zimbabwe, uh, which many of you will be aware uh, has a a complicated and, and corrupt political culture and they were in a scenario where uh, there was a farm that they used to train people in agriculture, and they're you know, they're bringing kind of healing to the land, to thousands of people through this training program that they run on this land. Suddenly there was a compulsory purchase order made on it. It needed to be taken out of the hands of the white person who owned it and given to some other people instead. And they were cheering through. How, what do we do about this? How do we honour God? How do we pray? How do we live? And the conclusion they came to, Scott Mark said, the condition of the society around us should not isolate or envelop us, but we are to be a blessing to everyone. He said, we've really chewed this through. And we have a variety of opinions, he says, on our government in Zimbabwe. We are going to bless them. We've decided there's a variety of opinions, but there's one goal. We are going to bless them. And they've settled on that. And I think that's... That's that's right. I think that's where God is taking us with this. So we serve wherever we can. Because all Christians are in Christ, there's no rat race amongst us. There's no desperation to put others down as we climb to the top, whatever that may be. Because we're all at the top. You couldn't be any higher. If you're a Christian here, you can have no higher status than what you currently have. It's really true kind of think, oh, but if I had some more letters after my name or if I had some letters in front of my name or if I had someone else's surname someone like that, then I would be, no you, are, you couldn't be higher than you currently are, you are seated with Christ if this is true, and it is it's easy well, maybe it's not easy but when you think it through, it is easy to do what Paul says when he says, submit to one another Because who are you trying to beat? Who is your rival here if you are all in Christ? No one is. And serving one another doesn't just teach us that, it is an expression of it. This is what it looks like. My involvement in church work began when I said to a leader, I would like to help, what would you like me to do? And that's really kind of how Things have gone ever since then. I've had the privilege of serving in some remarkable ways and influencing hundreds, maybe in some context, thousands of people. I never asked for any of it because I didn't want it to be about me, which is then awkward when you share it as an anecdote in a preach. But I, <laughs> I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make the point. I, ju- I, I wanted to serve because look what God has done. Look where we are. I want to encourage that. You think, man, I just, I get to serve. I can be involved. This is, this is wonderful. We're not looking for position or prominence. That's not how God's kingdom works, clearly. And we, we don't do this through gritted teeth. Anything can be an opportunity in the church to show and experience the wonderful unity that Christ has brought us into. Anything. Especially, I think, how you serve. And out with the church Everywhere else is a chance for us to show people that Jesus is an incredible serving saviour who works powerfully through those who, people who are in him. So we serve anywhere and everywhere. You might have thought that the way to end hierarchies, the way to kind of sort out our society, would be to take everyone down a peg or two. And Christianity's message that we're all sinners does kind of do that, but that isn't the end of the story. It concludes with every person who believes in Jesus being described as in Him, the highest of highs. This is radically different to the rather confused message that we get from our society where the rights of an individual are placed above all other considerations and it's the survival of the fittest. We don't think that way. I don't believe God thinks that way. Jesus offers hope. To the hopeless whether they are at the top or the bottom of society's ladder. He unites us with himself and then with each other and he builds beautiful communities that share this love with each other and the whole world. So I want us to end now by committing uh, to being that way uh, and to enjoy it and to work with him to do it.